I want to say thanks this morning, and uh, I'm saying thanks to a certain group of people who are represented in our church, and uh, those are the veterans. If you are a veteran, would you stand right now and let us honor you? If you're a veteran, would you please stand up? We've got a men and women, balcony and on the floor. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. We, we don't say thanks enough to our veterans, and this is Veteran Day weekend. Uh, I'm asked all the time, are you in the military, or were you in the military? I guess it's, it's my haircut, and uh, here's my response. I say, no, but I am in the Lord's Army. Uh, well, it's usually funny when I say it. Okay. I'm a buck private in the Lord's army. So, hey, I, I love to preach, and I thank you for the opportunity I've been given here to preach. Um, I've been preaching for 44 years. My first sermon was when I was 12 years old. For the last 34 years, I have been preaching every Sunday multiple times a week. Uh, I'm not going to say that I'm an expert at preaching, but I'm trying to get better at it. And one of the things that I figured out is the shorter my message, the better it is. You would agree with that. I, here's what I know about you. You have this clock inside your head, and after a few minutes, you just turned me off, you know? So, so I know how it is. M most of my sermons that I preach are about 30 minutes long, between 25 and, and 30 minutes. I, I have dragged it on for 40 minutes, and there have been occasions when I've had to speak for an hour. I've been given an hour time slot. What I've figured out in those circumstances is I just take two of my sermons and put them together, <laughs> and I have an hour-long sermon. I have never preached four hours for four hours. And you say, amen, I don't know that I have it in me, but I do know of someone who did preach for four straight hours. His name was Peter Gabriel. In the mid-1500s, the Reformation was spreading through Europe. The established church at the time had become very corrupt, not only in their moral behavior, but also in their theology and doctrine. There was a belief that a person had to do certain things in order to be saved. If you wanted to establish a relationship with God, you had to keep the sacraments. You had to keep certain ceremonies. You had to go through certain motions and pay penance. And if these works were good enough, it might qualify you for heaven. Or so it was thought. But then men like this came along, Martin Luther in Germany, John Calvin in Geneva, Zwingli in Zurich. They were the great reformers. And what they preached was, no, we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Reformation reached Holland in the mid-1560s. And there was a man in Holland by the name of Peter Gabriel who began preaching Reformation truth in his own home to those who would come and listen. He went on from there and preached all throughout Holland and Amsterdam. The authorities tried to quiet him. They told him if he didn't stop preaching Reformation truth, all of his goods, including his house, would be confiscated. 
They confiscated his house and all his goods, but he kept preaching. They told him if he didn't stop preaching, a warrant would be put out for his arrest. He kept preaching. They told him if he didn't stop preaching, there would be a price put on his head. He kept preaching. Outside of Amsterdam was a large estate owned by a very wealthy man. And it was announced that there would be a great preaching service on this estate July the 14th. 1566. Authorities in Amsterdam tried to block the meeting by shutting the town gates and not allowing anyone out of the town on that day. But people found ways of getting outside the walls. Many of them swam out the canals. Some of them left early that morning when the milkmaids went out into the fields to milk their cows. And by 11 o'clock, the authorities finally relented and opened the gates. Literally thousands of people went to this estate to hear the gospel preached. Peter Gabriel stood up and announced his text. He was going to preach on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he preached for four straight hours. But apparently nobody minded. They hadn't heard the gospel preached in over a thousand years. And they were hungry for the message of the truth. Well, Peter Gabriel's sermon that day helped establish the Protestant Reformation in Holland. Now, today, my sermon isn't going to be nearly as long as Brother Gabriel's, all right? But I am going to preach from the same passage, the same theme, and the same content. I'm not just going to preach from verses 8 and 9. I want to back up and start in verse 1. So here we are, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul wrote and said this, And you he made alive. i got to do a quick time out and tell you who he was talking to. He was preaching to the Christians at Ephesus, the church there. It would be as if Paul were standing here saying this to you, the Christians at Kavanaugh Free Will Baptist Church, And you he made alive. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are alive today. You are alive in Christ. You've been born again. Your sins have been taken away. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're alive. That is good news because, listen, he goes on and says, Who were? Okay? Passive. You're alive now, but that's not the way you've always been who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, I got to love verse 4. It all pivots on these words, 
but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were yet dead in trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And in parentheses, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his word. The theme of this passage is salvation. By grace through faith. Verse number 5 says, It is by grace you have been saved. And verse 8 reiterates that truth. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, we're familiar with the word saved. It's a part of our Christian vocabulary. It's some of the church lingo that we fling around. We say, I was saved on such and such date. Or we might ask someone, Are you saved? When have you been saved? Those questions are perfectly normal to us, but for someone who hasn't grown up listening to church lingo, it may seem foreign to them. What are we talking about when we say we're saved? Well, when Paul wrote here that we are saved by grace, he used a word which literally means to rescue someone from danger. To save someone who is in a perilous situation. To deliver them. So do you grasp the meaning of this word? The word save means to rescue. To deliver. To save somebody. I don't know how many of you were alive on May the 9th, 1968. I was uh, almost seven years old at the time, but it's a day that I will never forget. Especially in Midland, Texas. All right? I love talking about Midland. How, again, how many of you have ever been to Midland, Texas? Raise your hand like you're proud of it. Oh, my goodness, yes. The thing about Midland is called the Tall City. Did you know that? That's its nickname, the Tall City. Why is it called the Tall City? Because it's so flat out there. When you're on Interstate 20, heading west, about 12 miles outside of Midland, you can see the, the buildings of downtown Midland, and it's called the Tall City because you can see it. The thing about Midland is it's flat. There are no mountains, no trees, no valleys. It's just flat. I like to say there's nothing to block your view. It's just all flat. Roads run north and south, east and west. It's easy to get around in Midland, Texas. Huh? I've not convinced you yet that it's a great place. May the 9th, 1968, literally the heavens opened up that morning. It held... Hell came down the size of golf balls. Some say they were even the size of softballs. And then it rained. And man, did it rain. It rained five inches in less than two hours. Okay? Five inches in less than two hours. You know what they called it? There's a special name for this. It's a flash flood. Now, you might not think five inches is a whole lot of rain, but when it falls in less than two hours in the city of Midland, Texas, it is disastrous because there's absolutely nowhere for that water to go. 
And so it literally flooded everything. Houses were flooded. Schools were flooded. Roads were flooded. Businesses were flooded. There was one fatality that I remember. A salesman from Lubbock, Texas was driving down Highway 80. The rain washed his car off the road into the bar ditch, which was already full of water, and he drowned. Again, I was a little kid six years old, I can remember getting in the vehicle with mom. We went to search for my sister who was still at school. And I saw something that literally blew my little brain. In Midland, Texas, on the roads in Midland, there were boats floating. I'd never seen boats on the road floating like that. And it just kind of freaked me out. Number one, I didn't even know anyone in Midland, Texas owned a boat. I mean, we didn't have any lakes around us, but there were a few boats, and literally, people in boats were rescuing. They were delivering people who were stranded. In fact, there is, there is one street, and I know you're getting sick of this story, but I can't help talking about it because I remember it so well. There's a street in, in Midland that goes north and south. It's called Big Springs Street. And there's a point in Big Springs Street where it, it dips down and goes underneath the railroad track. Okay, the railroad track's on a normal level. Big Spring Street dips down and goes under it. So it's like 14 feet underneath the railroad. Well, when that flash flood hit, immediately Big Spring Street flooded under the railroad. Literally, I can remember as a kid in the Midland Reporter Telegram, there were pictures of cars floating under the railroad track on Big Spring Street. And people came and delivered and saved those people who were stranded in their car. Are you getting the picture? I got a point to this. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners and that the flood of God's judgment is rising against each of us. Therefore, we need a great divine paramedic to come and rescue us from drowning in the flood tide of God's wrath. When you reach out and trust that divine one to save you, the moment you reach out to him, you're saved. When you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, and when you receive him by faith, at that very moment, you're saved. That's why Paul began in verse number 1 by saying, And you, he made alive. You were facing the wrath of God. The flood tide of God's wrath was coming down on you. But you reached out your hand and he saved you. He made you alive. You're born again. Now, with that as our background, let's just give this wonderful little paragraph of Scripture a brief overlook. And again, I... I emphasize the word brief, all right? We're a quarter of the way through. Hang with me. The first thing that we notice in verses 1 through 3 is the hopelessness of our own human condition. In these three verses, Paul describes the condition of every person without the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it in six different ways. Again, understand what we're talking about. Here is a description of people without Jesus Christ, described in six different ways. First of all, he says we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Two words there, the word trespass. It means to fall beside the road. 
Have you ever tried to climb up a steep bank and you've lost your footing and you slid back down? Well, that's the idea here. And all of us have done that both spiritually and morally. We've messed up. Amen. We've fallen. We've lost our footing morally and spiritually. The word sin means to miss the target. And no matter how hard we try to aim at perfection, we just keep missing the mark. Therefore, he describes us as being dead in trespasses and sin. And the Bible teaches that outside of Christ, everyone, every man, woman, boy, and girl is dead. They are separated from God in transgressions and in sin. Now, I don't want there to be any mistake about this. Let me tell you what this means. This means that this world is literally being ran by dead men and dead women. They may be breathing and they may be alive, but spiritually and morally, they are dead. The vast majority of our politicians, our business leaders, our educators, and our journalists are dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. We are surrounded by dead people, millions of them, billions of them. They are running around in circles seeking pleasure and success and security. But on the inside, they are morally and spiritually dead. They are dead in terms of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And can I just back up and say, if you really want to know what's wrong with our world today, this is it. Sin. People are dead in their trespasses and sin. What makes a man bust into a church in South Texas and kill 26 people? I mean, you can, you can listen to all the arguments on, on news talk radio. You can even read the periodicals that appear in our paper. I read one yesterday bringing up the gun issue again. It always comes back up. But here's, can I tell you what this preacher thinks? You can take all the guns, all the knives, all the machetes, all the weapons of war and totally eradicate them. Talk about mental illness. You can make everyone mentally fit. But you know what? People are still going to kill people. In Genesis chapter 4, no one was mentally ill. In Genesis chapter 4, they didn't have guns, but yet Cain killed his brother Abel. People don't like to hear this. They don't want to be told there's something wrong with you. I mean, I don't like to be told that. Do you? I don't like to be told you're wrong. I was told that this past week. Did I like it? No, I didn't like it. We don't like to be reprimanded. We don't like to be told we're wrong. But the Bible is emphatic. It says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible calls that depravity. We have a deprived human nature. And if you want to know what's wrong with our world, that's it. We're dead in trespasses and sins. But it goes on. Second, without Christ, we are described as following the ways of this world. You know, remember Jesus? Jesus said there are two ways. There are two highways. There are, there are two pathways you can travel. One is wide and bright, but it's crooked, and it leads to destruction. The second highway is straight and narrow, and it's hard to walk, but it leads to everlasting life. Without Christ, we're on the wrong road. Without Jesus, we are dead people walking down a dead-end street. 
Mm. Number three, without Christ we are following the ways of the prince of the power of this air. That's what verse 2 says. That, of course, is a clear indication in reference to Satan. But why is he called the prince of the power of this air? Well, commentators differ on this. There, there are literally two different opinions. Some of the commentators believe that literally Satan's demonic host fill the air and they pollute the atmosphere. And they say if you had spiritual eyes and the veil was unveiled before you, you would literally see these demonic forces floating around in the air making their attacks on the people of God. Other commentators look at this phrase figuratively. And they say Satan is the prince of the moral atmosphere of this earth. He is the moral evil that is in our world. I would like to suggest to you that both meanings are true. Both are true. Are there literally demons flying around the air right now? Yes, they are. They're right there. You might not be able to see them, but they are there. Why? Because he, the devil himself, is the prince of the power of the air. Number four, without Christ, we are following the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse number two. This is another reference to Satan. Satan is mentioned throughout the book of Ephesians. He is active and he is at work in the lives of those around us. His invisible hand, his subtle influence, his deceptive tomfoolery are closer than most of us realize. Number five, according to verse number three, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So this devil who rules the air and works in the ungodly finds an able and willing ally in our own sinful natures. Really, literally, we are trapped between the fallen nature inside of us and the fallen angel on the outside of us. And none of us can escape that. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. Number six, we are by nature children of wrath. Verse number three, that is a Hebrew idiomatic phrase meaning that we are under the sentence of God's wrath. We are all facing the wrath of Almighty God. Now this doesn't mean that God is mad at us in some kind of immature and juvenile kind of way. No, it refers to God's right and necessary response to all moral evil. The world is under the wrath of God. You know what that is, don't you? Time out. This is not very positive preaching, is it? Can I say, it's not. I mean, none of y'all are giggling, we're not laughing, we're not smiling. This is serious stuff. It is meant to be serious stuff. It's not popular preaching, but it's necessary preaching. These three verses remind me, literally, I can't help it, when I read these verses and studied them this week, I literally thought of the Hindenburg. Now, some of you are much too young to know anything about the Hindenburg, but it was a luxury floating vessel that, uh, you know, state-of-the-art at its time, but boy, it was sure flawed in its design. If you don't know anything about the Hindenburg, I got a quick video 
Only lasts a minute and 33 seconds. Watch this. Here's my point. Without Jesus Christ, we are all passengers on the Hindenburg. I mean, your life might be great. You're living high on the hog. You've been 73 hours in luxury. Air-conditioned luxury. Everything may be awesome in your life. You may think everything is wonderful. It's great. But without Jesus Christ, you do not realize you are facing the wrath of Almighty God. And you're going to burn up. Ephesians 2 says... You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You followed the ways of this world. You followed the ways of the prince of the power of the air. You followed the spirit who is now at work among the disobedience. You gratified the sinful cravings of your own nature. But you are the object of God's wrath. That is our human condition. Like it or not, that's the way we are. But you got to love verse 4. <laughs> Everything pivots on the word but. In verse number 4, we see God's divine motivation for us. Verse 4 says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For by grace you have been saved. <laughs> According to this verse, God has two great motivations for saving us from this judgment. The first is this, His great love for us. His great love for us. Let me tell you, God loves you. That's what the verse says. God loves you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, which includes you. And the Bible teaches us that the steadfast love of the Lord Jesus Christ never ceases. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's second motivation is not only His love, but His mercy. 
Verse number 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Mercy is a feeling of compassion that makes someone save or rescue someone else. And God's great love and his rich mercy combine to send him to this earth for the express purpose of being nailed hand and foot to an old rugged cross. The blood flowing from his forehead because of the crown of thorns beaten into his brow. The blood flowing from his back after he took that awful scourging. The blood flowing from his hands and feet where the nails had been driven into his flesh. And the blood flowing from his side where a spear had been pierced. You know, the Bible says there is something miraculous and yet a bit mysterious about the blood of Jesus Christ. Because it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that can satisfy the wrath of God's judgment. I just read Romans 5, 8 to you. Listen to Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. Did you hear that? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Well, I got something for you today. Thank God for his love and his mercy. <laughs> Thank God for his love and rich mercy because it is only because of his love and rich mercy that we can experience point number three, and that is eternal salvation. Listen again to me as I read verses four through nine. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast. God does three things for us. Number one, he makes us alive in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But when you reached up to him by faith, he made you alive. Number two, he seats us with Christ in heavenly places. You know what I am as a, as a born-again believer? I am a believer priest. And I am reigning with Jesus Christ. Right now I'm reigning with Jesus Christ. And in the future I will reign eternally with Jesus Christ. Because in the future, number three, he will show us the incomparable riches of his grace. We get to spend all eternity in heaven. And it's all because of one thing. It's all because of grace. It's all because of grace. One of my favorite preachers is uh, Charles Spurgeon. He pastored in London over 100 years ago. And there, there are many stories about Spurgeon, but one of my favorite stories is when he was a teenager, just a teenage boy. 
He was already preaching when he was a teenager, and his grandfather was also a preacher, and so his grandfather invited young Charles to come and preach at his church, but something detained him, and he was late getting there. Time for the service to start, and still young Charles wasn't there. They, they sang their hymns, and then the granddad finally reluctantly got up and started preaching without the young man. He announced his text, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast and he had really gotten halfway into his sermon when there was a commotion at the back door Charles had finally made it and as he walked in the church and, and up the aisle the elder Spurgeon said here comes my grandson he can preach the gospel better than I can but you cannot preach a better gospel Charles <laughs> And as the young man walked up the aisle, he said, Oh, grandfather, you can preach better than me. Keep preaching. But the grandfather insisted his grandson come to the pulpit. And as he walked up on the stage, he explained to young Charles that he had already started the sermon. It was Ephesians chapter 2. And he had already shown the people the source of salvation, which was the grace of God. And he was now speaking about the channel of salvation, which is faith. And he said, Take to it, young man. <laughs> And so Charles stood behind the pulpit and he picked up where his granddaddy left off and he started preaching. The granddaddy was sitting over here and after young Charles started preaching, he hopped back up and came up and pushed his grandson out of the way and he preached a little longer and then he pulled his grandson back behind the pulpit and now he sat right behind him. And as young Charles Spurgeon preached from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, his granddaddy was behind him saying, Ooh, that's good. That's good, Charles. Tell them that again. Tell them that again. Much later, Charles wrote and said, Every time since that moment when I preach on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I can still hear my granddaddy say, Tell them that again, Charles. Tell them that again. I know you've heard this before. But all week the Holy Spirit has been telling me, Will, this is good stuff. Tell them again. Tell them again. Because God knows there's someone in this room today that needs to be rescued. There's somebody in this room today that needs to be saved. Perhaps you are here and you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. You're following the ways of this world. You're listening to the prince of the power of the air. You're following the spirit who now works in the heart of those who are disobedient. You are gratifying the cravings of your own soul. Friend, you need to hear me. You're facing the wrath of Almighty God. But God who is rich in His mercy and in His grace, wants to make you alive today. He wants to seat you with Christ, and He wants to give you an inheritance that will last a lifetime. And all you have to do is reach out in faith and believe. And when you reach out and touch Him, you'll be saved. Will, 
Tell them again. Tell them again. It's for by grace that you can be saved today. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You can't do enough works, good works, to deserve it or earn it. It's God's gift to you. Would you receive that gift today? I'm going to ask that you bow your head and close your eyes. I believe there's somebody in this room today that needs to be saved. If you are that person, would you simply respond during this invitation and come forward? One of our pastors will come and pray with you, and we'll show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. It might be that you're here today and you've been saved, but you're away from God right now. You've listened to the prince of the power of the air. You're, you're following the cravings of your own sinful nature instead of following the will of God. If that is the case, let's come today and repent and get things right with Jesus. You know what? It, it may be that you're here today and everything's great. You are alive in Jesus. You're living for the Lord. I, I want you to know that, you know what? You can come and pray at this altar anytime. Things, listen to me, things don't have to be messed up in your life to come and pray at the altar during the invitation. You could come down here today and thank God for His great salvation. Could be that there are needs that you have in your life you just want to lay before the Lord today. God, let me tell you, now is the time. And here is the place to do that. 